Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. What if you knew exactly how to use cold email, LinkedIn, the phone, and other sales channels to get new meetings and customers for your B2B product or service? Morgan Williams is an enterprise sales rep that's obsessed with cold outreach. If you're sick and tired of fluff, theory, and general advice on how to sell to cold prospects from people who haven't sold anything in the past 20 years and instead want detailed, tactical, step-by-step instruction, this is the podcast for you. Each week, he'll interview salespeople, consultants, and entrepreneurs about actual outbound sales campaigns they've run with real numbers and results. Each conversation will be a deep dive into deconstructing a specific campaign's results, as well as the strategy behind it. You'll get the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see what's actually working now in cold outreach. Welcome to Outbound Metrics. Sam Jacobs is the founder and CEO of Pavilion. Pavilion is a safe haven and private center for high growth operators to achieve their professional potential with function-based communities for sales, marketing, customer success, revenue operations, general operations, finance, and soon to be many more. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to dive in. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Outstanding. I'd like to talk about your background leading up to Pavilion. I think you've got a really interesting group of diverse experiences. It looks like I first want to talk about your time in music founder and CEO at the Annex Group, an independent record label. I'd love to talk about that before we get into sales chat. How did you how did you find your way in music? I was in college and I had a bunch of friends that were musicians. And they're the kinds of friends who left to their own devices probably won't wouldn't at that point wouldn't have done very much with their musical talents. And I wanted to see if I could help them achieve their dreams, become famous, that kind of thing. And so I started out of school. I was in investment banking and I decided to quit my job and start this record label to help my friends and to promote their music. And I went down to Charlottesville, Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia. I went back to Charlottesville to try and run this record label. And I realized when I got down there that the bands that I was supporting weren't very good, unfortunately. <laughs> and also the music industry is a terrible, maybe it's better now, but back then it was just a horror. It's not, it's not a fun uh, place. It's it's a CD place, and it was it's really really hard to make money. And so I ended up uh, shutting it down. And then I moved back to New York in 2003, and it was that point that I actually bought my own acoustic guitar and started writing songs. And now I've got more music on Spotify than than those bands do because I played a bunch of gigs throughout the city over the last. I haven't done it in ten years, but from like 2005 to 2009, I was a performing musician in New York City. Awesome. Very cool. Your move back to New York, I I see this. Is this where you started working at Gerson Lerman and kind of got into sales from there? Yep. Okay. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about, it looks like you did a ton there. I'd love to hear about your experience. 
Sure. I joined Gerson Lehrman Group when they were doing about $25 million in revenue. I, I got there through my friend Jim Sharp, who was an early employee. And uh, Gerson Lehrman Group is an expert network. And it, what it does is it finds people that know about stuff and it connects them to people that want to know about those things primarily or originally within the investment community. So when hedge funds and mutual funds are making investments and before they buy the stock of a steel company, they want to know that the steel company is producing effectively and efficiently and that the environment is a good environment for making steel, they might connect to steel experts and Gerson Lehrman Group would pay those people and charge the investor a lot more than that. And it was a very, it's probably going to be, we'll see, but it'll probably end up being the best economic engine, the best business that I've ever been a part of. They're right now on a run rate of about 650, maybe close to 700 million in recurring revenue. And they throw off anywhere from 100 to $200 million of cash every year. And it's just an incredible business. So I joined there when it was small, 50 people, 26 million in revenue. You can do, again, do that math because most SaaS businesses do not have 26 million in revenue on 50 people, I can tell you that. And from there, it went from 25 million to about 280 by the time I left. And I had all kinds of different amazing experiences working with teams, leading teams, watching company, watching a company grow and scale and develop. Awesome. And from there, you had a few more stops. SVP of sales at a few different places, Axial, Livestream, Chief Revenue Officer at the Muse. What I want to understand is, since that time, how have you seen sales change for individual contributors and for managers? Like what trends have you pulled out of the last 10 years or so? Well, there have been a lot of different trends. 10 years ago, really 12 years ago, was The Rise of Predictable Revenue, the book that Aaron Ross wrote. And it was the first, it was sort of like the growth of the SDR function. So the big, the, the, the first big, well, the very, very first big thing that happened, I remember the first time I saw a Salesforce dashboard before anybody knew who Salesforce.com was. And that was in 2005, 2006. Obviously, they had been around before then. But the first big thing that happened was Salesforce itself reinventing basically cloud computing and SaaS and becoming something different than Oracle or SAP or any of these on-prem technology companies. Then the next thing that happened was that the the SDR, the sales development rep, became like the most popular new function. And the methodology uh, that the SDRs practiced became equivalently popular. And back then it was Really, the way that we interpreted predictable revenue at Axial, where I used to work, was plain text emails. Aaron Ross made popular the the right direction email. Who's the right person in, in charge of XYZ department when you're trying to make a sale or get into an organization? And that was also, that corresponded roughly, uh, now we're in like 2013, 2014, with the rise of just a massive explosion of sales and marketing technology. Uh, obviously, notably, companies like Outreach and Salesloft that enabled this SDR function. So first you had the function emerge, and then you had software for the function emerge designed to help people, they would say, deliver personalization at scale, which is sort of an oxymoron. But that was that was like the first, that was the first from 2010 to, I don't know, 2015 was like the rise of the SDR. And obviously, we, we still have lots and lots of SDRs everywhere. Then the second thing that happened was that basically everybody was 
spraying and praying. And so there became, slowly there emerged this uh, perspective around account-based marketing, prioritized marketing. I mean, I took a John Barrows course 12 years ago when he was talking about your tier A, your tier B, and your tier C accounts. And your tier A are the five accounts you're definitely going to get into. And that was effectively account-based marketing. That's from his session called Filling the Funnel. So account-based marketing evolved because spray and pray probably leads to higher churn, right? It leads to people that don't want to pay as much because they're probably not as good a fit where you can't deliver the right amount of value. And so there's this been this big emphasis on making sure that we are identifying and targeting the right people to buy our stuff, that we can engage them more effectively and that they are happier customers. I would say the other thing that's happened recently is just that every channel eventually becomes saturated Right, so like you can send all the emails you want. At some point, people stop responding to emails. You can be an SDR and start sending breakup emails and say, "Hey, are you trapped under a cabinet? Why won't you write me back?" But all of these tactics, there, we, the sales community, we are like, in some ways, I can't tell if we're the vaccine or the plague. But one way or the other, we have to constantly adapt because people's attention is constantly shifting. And so now we're in a world of effectively because of a lot of. Because of the price of a sales team, the expense related to building a sales team, now the most popular thing is product-led growth or product-led sales. It's how do we create some kind of free experience, and that will be the demo, that will be the marketing engine, right? We'll build something so simple and easy to use and beautiful that people will start using it, and then they'll naturally give us money and upgrade over time. And I can testify to the efficacy of that strategy because my company, Pavilion, which we'll talk about, has 70 employees, and we'll do we'll be doing 20 million by the end of this year, and we are still using the free HubSpot instance that I set up when I became a consultant after leaving the Muse in 2017. Five years later, this is still the same instance of HubSpot. Obviously, like the data is different and it's all a lot more built out, but that is, that is a perfect example of a, of a well-executed product-led growth strategy. Sure thing. Harder to be an SDR now or in 2012? much harder to be an SDR now for a bunch of different reasons. One of them is that, well, first of all, it's just harder getting people's attention. It's a hard job and there's a lot of pressure and it can be pretty monotonous and repetitive. That's thing number one. And thing number two is everybody knows about the job now, so nobody's under any illusions and people are itching to stop being SDRs as soon as they become SDRs. For companies to retain SDRs are performant at whatever their ideal capacity or productivity level is, probably for six months, right? You probably spend the first six months ramping them. They probably perform for six months and maybe even only for three months. And then they start agitating, rightfully so, I don't blame anybody, but agitating for a promotion or to move out of it. You also see that a lot of people, it really depends on the sales environment that you're building, but a lot of people start as SDRs and realize they don't want to be in sales. Yeah. <laughs> and so then they move on you know, to other, other areas. But I would just, to answer the question, I think it's harder. It's just a hard job. It's a really hard job. You have to do a lot of activities over and over and over again. It can be repetitive. There's a lot of pressure. It can also be really, really cool. It just depends how you think about it. The, the plus side of an SDR is you're a detective. If you think about it, if you're truly doing a targeted account-based work, then what you're doing is thinking about what is it that I can say or do to get into the mind of this person that I think would be a great fit for my product. And the thrill of getting somebody to respond to a thoughtful email is still, it's one that I feel when I send a cold email. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll also add one to that. I'd say for the past couple of years, being remote must be very challenging for an SDR, someone who is pretty early on in their career. I know when I was in that type of role, hearing 
people around me, different things they said on the phone, their tonality was really impactful for me. Um, curious what you think about that. I agree with you. I think it's harder. I'm old. I, I like remote work because I have a nice apartment. I'm in my home office right now. It's really easy for me to say that remote work is better. But if I was 22 years old and didn't have a lot of money and maybe had some three roommates and was living here in New York City, the idea that I would work from home for 12 months, 18 I mean, many people had to leave. If you were a young person and you had any resources, like if your family was able to support you in any way, it only made sense to leave because it's really hard to share a living room where you're supposed to be doing outbound dials on air call or some kind of virtual phone system when three other people are sitting next to you. So I think it's diff it's difficult. I also think it's hard. You have to be much more self-motivated when you work from home. Th there can be activity metrics and there can be people monitoring how many dials you're making, how many emails you're sending. But nevertheless, when you're not in an office environment, it's hard to make sure that you have the right level of energy. It's hard to make sure you don't sleep too much or block out your calendar and take a nap. And I can understand why people sometimes want to do that. I, I guess the last thing I will say is, you know, something that I've, we are, we're doing this uh, roadshow, Pavilion's doing these roadshows, uh, and we're, we're coming to Chicago in a couple of weeks. But one of the people that speaks is this guy, Kevin Dorsey, KD. He was VP of sales at Patient Pop, and he's a consultant now for Winning by Design. And one of the things that he shares in his talk is that Gen Z, the people that are the, the youngsters, they are the least employed generation coming out of college of any generation in history. Right. And what that means is they didn't work during high school and college. Right. They they were doing extracurricular activities. They were studying, whatever it was. And the point is that uh, a lot of people early in their career, they don't know how to work. And I don't mean that in any derogatory way. I mean, they haven't been taught how to be a professional. And so you find yourself in a remote environment where you're in your bedroom and you don't have to go to the office and there's not the social the cues that you get of like what you're supposed to wear and how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to say. And I think it's even harder for those people in, the, in a way that's not totally dissimilar from kids that did remote schooling instead of going into school. There's like a lack of professional socialization that's happening that I think impacts people's ability to, to be good at their jobs. I think they're not sure what is expected of them. And we as an older generation are frustrated sometimes that we have to spell it out. But this is a group of, I'm not sure how they were supposed to know otherwise since they haven't worked before. Right. It's hard to know what good looks like if you don't see it around you, if you're not immersed in it, for sure. Exactly. want to touch on uh, one more thing here with SDRs before moving into sales communities and pavilion but you have a unique perspective since you run Pavilion. You have a lot of different people in your organization, members, and you're able to see a lot about what's going on in the market. Past 10, 12 years, there's been a lot of investment dollars in the system, a lot of new companies popping up, and they're hiring sales teams. What are the, company, the companies who are doing it right, who are scaling SDR organizations, what are, what are some commonalities you see with them. The companies that are doing it right, this is my perspective. The companies, and of course, this is like self-serving because I think we're doing it right, but generally speaking, the companies that do it right, and that's why product-led growth is a good thing, the companies that are doing right are more in tune with the overall organic growth of the market. 
And what that means is they've raised the right amount of money, not too much money, because you raise too much money, you put yourself into a growth position that maybe you're not ready to grow into. Even though it looks good that you raised $100 million, you raised $100 million because you told people that you were going to be doing $100 million in ARR in a couple of years, and the pressure to get on that track is very intense. The companies that do it right focus first on the product, then they focus on marketing, then they focus on sales. And they're always obsessed, first and foremost, about pipeline generation more than they are about hiring salespeople. The companies that do it right are heavily invested in marketing. Like They are focused on building brand. They are focused on telling people about the company so that the, the job of the sales team specifically is easier because you are working with leads. The companies that do it right from an SDR perspective, are invested in professional development and career pathing, right? It's not that it's not open-ended. It is, this is what you do for six months, then you get a small raise and you get a different title or maybe your SDR level two and then your SDR level three. The companies that do it right are very focused on making sure that they have a, it's not about hiring like the salesperson with the longest Rolodex or with like the most relationships. It's about building a process that creates great salespeople. That's, but I think all of it fundamentally starts with uh, a willingness. And we are like that. We're, we are a company, we have competitors. There's companies in our space that just raised $100 million and $60 million. And we haven't done that. We've raised $25 million one time. But I guess my point is the companies that do it right are balancing their growth with the needs of the market in a natural way, which is, I could go deeper on that, but it's sort of like the easiest way to say it. Sure, sure. Not out kicking their coverage, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Not hiring too many salespeople, not putting undue or unrealistic pressure. That doesn't mean that they don't want to grow. That doesn't mean that they're weak. That doesn't mean that Frank Slootman can say that they didn't amp it up. You know, the guy that's the chairman of Snowflake. It's not about being soft. It's about the right level of demand generation relative to how satisfied customers are with the product. Makes sense. Makes total if people sense. don't like the product and you're canceling and you have really high churn, it's not the right time to hire 50 different salespeople. For sure. Moving into sales communities, why start a sales community? What, what kind of started your interest in forming Pavilion? I, my interest in forming Pavilion grew from an awareness that most communities exist for some ulterior motive. And because they existed for some ulterior, or they were treated as a hobby, right? When I say exist for some ulterior motive, investors start communities all the time, right? Or software companies start communities, mm -hmm. right? A community-led growth. We'll start at work. We build customer success software. We'll start a customer success community. All of that is it's not cynical. It's, it's just a marketing strategy and it can be really helpful. But in the case of like a community led by investors, well, they don't really care about your professional development. They care about you getting the skills you need to help their portfolio succeed. That's not, oftentimes that's aligned, but it's not exclusively aligned. If it's started by a software company, well, obviously they just want to sell you software, right? Nobody had treated community like an end unto itself. Like this is the thing. It's not to sell it's not MSP wasn't it exists in some way to sell Atrium, which is like Pete Kazanji's software, which is cool. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's awesome. But my point is that nobody had treated it like an end unto itself. So what happens when you do that? What happens when you treat it like a business and not an afterthought? If you, Morgan, are my customer, I build things just for you, right? If my ultimate motive is like supporting the portfolio or supporting the sale of, you know, different kind of software, you're not my customer. You are an input, right? But really what I'm trying to do is get you to buy something else. I wanted to start something that was only about 
the individual member and their career. And what happens when you do that is you can talk about a lot of stuff that you couldn't talk about if you were subsidized by somebody else. And so we started off talking about people's careers. We do, we're doing these road shows. The whole first two hours are about executive compensation. And I walk through uh, great detail, great detail. All this stuff that you couldn't Google. If you don't have a mentor, you don't know who to ask. All these questions you might have about equity, about comp negotiation, about cash, about terms of equity, about severance, about assignment of invention clauses in your employment agreement. There's a million things in your life that you are scared to ask about and you're not sure where to go to get those answers. In addition to everything we were just talking about, like, well, how do you do a job? If, if email subject lines are being commoditized, if every time something works, people use the hell out of it until it stops working, well, you're going to need to be part of a community to figure out what's the new thing that's working because it's going to be changing all the time. I started, that's effectively why, but the, the fundamental reason is I just, it's a scary world out there. It's a volatile world, and I, cr- I wanted to create a place where people felt taken care of and where they felt like, somebody had their back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can attest to just things. I'm sure a lot of your members are in technology, technology adjacent. I mean, things are just changing so rapidly, especially over the past three to five years quickly. And it's really tough to, like you said, you don't know where to go, especially I think even like mid-career, like things start opening up and there's just so many more questions. When you're an SCR, you're early on, there's still have a lot of questions, but I feel like there's more answers out there at that point where you're starting because most people have been there. But as you kind of move along your journey, you don't really know where to look. I think that's really, really impactful. Can you talk about some of the things? I agree with you. Can you talk about some of the things that, I know you mentioned the road show, but like, what is it like to be a member at Pavilion and like, what really makes that good sales community? Well, I guess... A couple things. It depends, and exactly to your point, right? We've got people at different levels of their career. When you're early in your career, exactly to your point, we are putting less emphasis on community. We're putting more emphasis on training and skill development. So one of the things that's been really popular that we've built over the last two years has been Pavilion University. And that's where we have currently, I don't know, 11 to 15 live schools and courses that are running at any given time that people can take to be better at their job. So if you're early in your career, what your experience might be is taking sales school or frontline sales manager school led by Kevin Dorsey or sales development school led by Kyle Coleman. And what you're going to do is those are live schools where you're put into cohorts, groups of people. So it's almost like getting an MBA. You take the lecture and then you talk about it with your study group. And the nice thing is you talk about it with your study group, that helps you apply those lessons in a, in a real world context. So one big part of Pavilion is just a place to learn, to learn new skills taught by experts that are on the front lines so that you can apply the lessons that you learn uh, to your job and be better at your job. As you progress in your career, and to your point, you know, exactly everything you said about the the middle, the mid-career part, right? Where it's like, I now have experience. How do I take the next step? How do I become a VP? How do I get to the place where I see what's the magic that's required? What's the judo that's required? And that's where the executive community is much more about putting you into functional groups so that you can have a group of people that you can get questions answered and asked to. In-person events and experiences, in addition to Pavilion University, it's about mentorship. But the overall feeling that you have, which is what I want people to feel, is exactly what I said. I want people to feel tended to and taken care of. And I want them to see why it's better to pay than to join a free community. The last thing I'll say is, what is the thing that makes a successful community? In my opinion, 
there needs to be credibility to the community, right? That there needs, if you're running a community and you're t- telling people about how to be good at their job, well, you have to have been good at your job, right? There's that funny phrase, those who can't do teach. And there's a lot of communities out there run by people that don't have any actual experience and haven't achieved any meaningful level of success. So that's okay. That's not the end of the world. It's just that it's hard to trust that the advice and the context that they create in order for you to get answers to questions is the right one. I like to think that because we have been focused on bringing, we focused first and foremost on executives and bringing executives into the community that I think we're better positioned than others to deliver that level of training, education, and information. Absolutely. What have been some surprising things that have, that, that you've seen running Pavilion that you didn't expect in a sales community? Well, I, I didn't expect I didn't expect this level of growth. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I started working on this thing full time three and a half years ago and we had a couple hundred members. And I said, if I can get this thing to 2,000 people by the end of 2020, I'll be fine. It's an LLC. I'll be able to live comfortably. Nobody will be able to fire me. That'll be fine. COVID had an accelerating impact on the growth of the community. And instead of 2,000 people, we were close to 4,000 people. I never expected to raise money for this business. I never expected there... When I started this as a dinner club in New York, right? A dinner club in New York. So I assumed there's a dinner... There must be a sales executive club or a marketing executive club in every city in the world where there's startups. I'll just do the one that's in New York. Don't know why there isn't one in New York, but I'll do the one in New York. And it turned out that every city didn't have a sales executive club and um, and it 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 wasn't and it was something that people needed that they didn't have the biggest surprise is again i didn't expect this would be like a venture funded business and we closed a 25 million dollar round last year but i guess it's because of what we were just talking about which is that the world is changing so rapidly and when it's not just that the information that you need to be good at your job changes it's that you need to figure out what job should i take what is a demand generation manager do i want to be in product marketing or content marketing is sales development the right thing for me what is it like to be a vp sales. Mm -hmm. How am I going to learn how to be great at at being a VP of sales or a sales leader? All of these questions that don't have easy answers. And I think that the world, there's been so much capital uh, deployed into company formation. There's all these companies with all this money and Mm -hmm. they need leadership and they don't know how to teach these people how to be leaders themselves because they're focused on their product, rightfully so. There's just a massive need for in one way or the other, professional education and support that is focused on practical outcomes. That's like, it's not about, and I don't have anything against getting a PhD in psychology or a PhD in you know primitive cultures or anthropology or something, but this is about, but there's a need for people to learn the skills that they actually need to use every day in their job so they can be good at their job and mm-hmm. tie that to, okay, which job should I pick over 10, 20, 30 years that at the end of it all, I have all of the things that you and me want and everybody wants, right? We have money, we have impact, we have stability, we have security. We're not freaking out when we go to bed every night, adding up all the debt. Like how do I, in, how do I optimize the chance that that will happen? That's, that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll say there's never been more information. This is my theory. There's never been more information, but there's never been a greater desire for good information. Finding quality information is tough. Like you're looking through your LinkedIn feed. There's so much. Everybody's talking about something, especially if you're a younger SDR. You don't know who to listen to, right? But my question is, 
when it comes to Pavilion, your sales community, you mentioned COVID was a big accelerating impact. What would you say is number two, or if that's not number one, like what are at least a couple like big accelerators that you've seen from just people like, hey, there's a shift in the market here. There's something happening here where people crave this community. Well, again, I think COVID only, COVID just emphasized the the reality that that it's what we've been talking about. It's exactly what you just said, right? There's so much information. There's so much opportunity. It's not that for most of COVID, I'm sure we might be heading into a recession. We might be in a recession right now. You find out after the fact. But the point is like for, through all of COVID, it wasn't that there was not opportunity. There was opportunity for a lot of people. It was that you would, didn't know how to take advantage of the opportunity. And that's exactly what you said, right? There's more information than ever before. And so what people need is some curatorial layer, right? They need to know what is it that they're supposed to do. And that was... So that wasn't just COVID. That's just like, meanwhile, right? Everybody's attention span is shrinking. Everybody wants quicker, more immediate gratification. And as a consequence, everybody's staying a shorter and shorter amount of time at their job, right? Like staying a year, honestly, when I started working, and I, I don't think this is a bad thing. This is a good thing. People should be free to do whatever the hell they want, right? But when I started working, if you left your job before three years, you were a job hopper. Now, if you get a year, a good solid year out of somebody, out of especially like a somebody in their 20s or early 30s, like that is considered a good tour of duty. Like there's so much volatility in people's personal lives that you need something that is stable that will help you make those decisions. And, and I do completely agree. You can leave in the thing where my wife just walked in, but she's starting a retail store. She's starting a retail store here in Manhattan, right? And does she make her own stuff? No. What is it then? Well, what's the point of it? The point of it is that there's so much crap on Instagram. How are you going to pick the good stuff? How are you going to figure? And you need people whose taste you trust. You need tastemakers and influencers. That's why, that's why they exist because we don't know what's good. We don't know what the good restaurant is. There's a million restaurants within half mile of where I live right now, which one is the good one? Mm -hmm. So I think that that is part of the role of community. And frankly, that's a challenge as well for us. I'll tell you specifically, when we went into COVID, we were dinner club, like I said, right? But we pivoted hard into digital and we built out a supply chain where anybody could host like a meetup or um, or a webinar, right? And we, like you say, here's the topic of the webinar, here's the name of the webinar, we make a little graphic for you, we promote it. So we went from doing one webinar a month to 30 to 40 a week. Right. Wow. What did we now? What are we hearing from the community now? It's too damn much. Can you please just tell me what I'm supposed to do? Can you tell me the one event I'm supposed to go to? And so what we realize even within our community is there's too much noise. There's too much stuff going on. Let's we don't need to do 30 webinars a week. We can do three. We can do one. Let's just make it awesome. Awesome. Sam Jacobs, join pavilion.com. If anyone's interested in checking out Pavilion, the roadshow or becoming a member, join pavilion.com. Sam, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And you can email me too, Sam at joinpavilion.com if you want to chat. Good stuff. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening.